Hello and welcome to Combat Classics. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are back with book 12. Shiloh is going to give us an overview and I'm going to ask an opening question. So over to you, Shiloh. All right. Well, book 12 is the halfway point. There's 24 books in the Iliad. It's an interesting book too, because not only is it the halfway point, it's about half the, the length of book 11. It's only 470 lines, whereas the other books range up into the 900 line mark. Why that is, I can't say. So I hope one of you can make sense of it. But uh, short and sweet is that it opens in an interesting way. There's this, this a comment that the fortifications of the Achaeans will be destroyed one day, just so everyone knows. You know, that's how, uh, that's once Troy falls, these walls will fall too, these uh, Achaean walls. Meanwhile, the Achaean walls stand strong and there's a trench dug around them and these sorts of things. This is blocking the Trojan chariots from getting all the way to the Achaean ships. And so Hector orders his men to jump out of their chariots and they storm the Achaean fortifications. But just as they're sort of beginning to do this, an eagle flies across the battlefield with a serpent in its claws and the serpent bites the eagle and the eagle drops the serpent. And so this is interpreted as a sort of sign that maybe the Trojans aren't going to be so successful today, but Hector knows no intimidation. Uh, doesn't take the sign uh, seriously. So they do charge. There's some great scenes with Sarpedon. Ajax is involved. They're trying to hold, Achaeans are trying to hold the Trojans back. Sarpedon sort of breaches the, the lines. Hector, there's this amazing scene where he shatters a, or breaks a gate down by throwing a giant rock at it. And the Trojans uh, pour in and the Achaeans are terrified. And that's where the book ends. Yeah, so my question is, what is Homer doing and why is he doing it? when he uses this foreshadowing in the opening part of this book, saying that once the Greeks leave, once Troy is sacked, then the gods are going to get their revenge on this dastardly wall. Like, and it was because the, the Greeks didn't perform the right sacrifices. So why, why is Homer working that in there? Why are, what is this doing in terms of the narrative? And also a little bit like, why are the gods taking their time? on doing this when there's no reason the gods aren't really getting back at the Greeks and balancing some scales of justice by destroying this wall after it's not needed anymore. So I was just struck by that and plenty of foreshadowing in the book so we can broaden out from there. But specifically with this, I'm just wondering like, why does Homer use it? What use is it to the author and the, and the reader or the listener? And then why did the gods take their time in doing it? Yeah, I, I was struck by that beginning too. And one of the things that it, it made me notice, and I think this might go to Shiloh's question also about why this book is so short, is that the whole book is kind of defined by the, the features of the terrain made by the wall and the trench in front of it. So the book begins with the Trojans pressing forward and the, and the Achaeans retreating in front of this trench and the Trojans have to figure out how to get over it, right? Shall we try to run the chariots over it? Or are we going to go by foot? Are we going to outflank it? And the book ends with Hector hefting this big stone through the gate and kind of bringing down a portion of the wall or rendering the wall ineffectual. And so it looks like the, the whole book kind of goes from the trench through the gate, right? and inside the camp. And so it has this interesting, almost cinematic effect that it begins 
not with a kind of geographic pan out, but with a uh, temporal or a chronological pan out. And you see that this feature that is so important, so decisive in this book, because it's an obstacle to the Trojans that they eventually overcome, ends up being something that is obliterated entirely. So you can't even find, apparently, where the Trojan War happened, at least not on the basis of the the existence or the persistence of these fortifications. And so I think it has a kind of chilling effect, at least does on me, because it makes you wonder what else is going to be lost from this war. And at the same time, it makes the transitional character of Book 12 pretty clear, right? There's a barrier that's going to be broken through. And I think this is combined with the the sense that we got from the last book that it looks like Patroclus, we saw when we talked about Book 11, is willing to put on the armor of Achilles and go out there. And now there's no mention of that plan, right? And so you get suspense, right? And so those three effects seem to me to occur. That would be where I'd begin with this discussion of the the final fate of the wall. Is the, is the, the point there is that I don't know if this is in what you say, but it seems to me like um, this is Homer critiquing the epic character of the epic. It ain't so epic. Like, it's not even epic enough to last very long. Like it's not, So in other words, mortal things will be wiped away. And there's this, you know, there's this extraordinary story that you reader are reading and it sounds like these heroes are immortal almost in character. And it's this riveting, you know, thing that I'm telling you and, uh, and these sorts of things. And then... But just think about the fact that this will all be forgotten. It's not clear to me, in other words, why he's, maybe this goes back to the first part of what you said, why he's calling that to our attention. I assume this is, for example, not true of the gods, that they, that he's not trying to call into care, uh, to our minds the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the gods will be blown away with the wind, uh, you know, or this sort of thing, the way the humans will. But I'm, it's odd in a book that's thought to be an epic and that's such, it's like a gigantic rock and roll show from beginning to end with flashing lights and all this and that there's this kind of reminder that don't forget this is really not that this is not that uh, epic after all i just don't i don't fully understand that no it is it is super weird right because there's that imagery of the water and the rain hitting the helmets and breastplates and shields that were strewn about on the battlefield right and that the water and the sand will just cover these up and that's that's the imagery I think you're you're talking about Shiloh, and it is it's so interesting to like you said think about this rock show this you know action flick that's kind of paused ever so briefly, you know while this is going on like you know and the, this is the narrator kind of comes in and it says hey this is what's going to happen in the future, and there's just going to be breastplates and helmets and then you're just going to see sandbanks and water here in a once the gods do their work. And as that kind of narrator voice is going on, the characters are still fighting at, at the wall, the Greeks. And so for me, this comes back to what is the point of this? And are there good guys and are there bad guys kind of thing? And at least this description of what happens seems to call into question if any of that, any of this is worthwhile and if there's any good guys or bad guys and what this all mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. Could it be that Homer thinks that his epic, whether it's written down or as I guess was more likely or even known, was an oral tradition, right? So passed on from person to person, that his epic is an exception 
to this, you know, otherwise a tendency of the gods or of nature to cover over the achievements of human beings. Because maybe then what we're supposed to see is that, oh yeah, the wall didn't last, but my book will. And that would indicate a kind of superiority of the book, even to the deeds that are depicted in the book, maybe. I mean, as a somewhat narcissistic author, I really like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's so, it's not something that I think we've talked about very often in the pod, but the idea of author and the idea of authorship. Somebody made this. Mm. It is, it's utterly, one of the most fascinating things, and this is another thing we've maybe touched on, but I haven't talked in in depth, is how much this is an emergent order to this story. That because it was passed down orally, stuff got changed, you know? And it, it's something like a, you know, if you, if we want to continue kind of using the movie language, it's, it's like a, a mm. movie that, um, you know, just kept shooting new scenes and kept cutting scenes and kept cutting lines and kept changing structure. And that happened for centuries before somebody wrote it down. And then even now, because most of us read it in translation, there's this mm-hmm. emergent order of, you know, like I'm reading the Caroline mm-hmm. Alexander right now, and you guys may probably read the Fagels, and there's the Fitzgerald. And so, like, we're continuing to. Paul, I mean, I've mentioned, like, I just, I really like this imagery that uh, Montaigne uses in uh, an apology for Ramon Sabone about taking ideas. And he just like, he says, I just polish these and I just hand them to somebody else when I'm done and, and then they can polish them. But we're not done polishing them. And so that seems like, and I, I have this kind of hypothesis about Homer and Shakespeare that this is the reason why they're so compelling is because so many people have polished them. They might not be better in and of themselves, but because so many hands have, have polished them through the oral tradition of Homer and through just putting on Shakespeare again and again and again and again and again, mm-hmm. that we get this emergent order of what's working and what's not. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't answer the question of why is this book really short and why does it have so many similes <laughs> in it? Well, it is striking, isn't it, that... Um the way the gods choose to go about obliterating the earthworks around the Greek camp is they don't um, show up. And, you know, Poseidon takes his spear and uh, Apollo takes his bow and arrow and they kind of shoot it or blow it up or whatever a direct intervention of the gods would be. It's by the means of these rivers that are ordinarily separate in the plain of Troy but are said to flow together in a big inundation and wash everything away. So it looks like, um, you know, nature in the rough sense of the weather, right, things that happen in the outside world, um, is the means that the gods are using to wipe things out. And nature is also a thing that Homer repeatedly refers to in his similes as a comparison for what's going on in war. And yeah, I'm not sure what to make of that either. It seems to be part of the poetic character of this book you do get about a dozen of these comparisons in this chapter alone you guys have any sense of what the force of those are or what they add to the story it's it seems like you kind of touched on this in the last pod on book 11 is the lack of overarching control of minutiae that maybe maybe the big things zeus is kind of decreed right but, you know, Diomedes getting shot in the foot wasn't necessarily part of the plan. The, he, he, you know, Zeus leaves the details to the little people. You know, he's more of a big picture guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe some of the 
or maybe we're maybe I'm reading it the wrong way because you know some so many of the similes are small. They're they're you know minute things. This you know like what Tro, what Shiloh said about the Trojan seeing the serpent bite the eagle, right, and then drop it. That is so specific as to this happened at this point in this moment. But it also doesn't really affect anything, right? Like we can't determine causation. It's just how the audience interprets it. And so maybe that's part of what the similes are doing is leaving something to the listener, to the reader, as to how they want to interpret it. Just like mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. witnessing it, the characters they're witnessing the action themselves. Maybe it's a kind of remedy against the thought that war is fundamentally different in kind from uh, the things that are in the experience of non-warriors. Right? I'm just thinking of something like, all right, so Hector is said to be like a wild boar or lion. That's around line 14 of this chapter. Uh, line 40, rather. Now, it's true that I haven't had any direct experience of either a wild boar or a lion, you know, outside of a, outside of a zoo, right? And so that might be a rare experience. But people who uh, aren't engaged in war but are farmers trying to protect their crops or their flocks from wild animals might have regularly encountered them. And to say this is what war is like might be instructive and helpful. And it might do something to break down the barrier between war and peace. To say this is peacetime activity, this is wartime activity. If you go further, see around line 131, there are the two heroes, Polypoetes and Leontius. And they're said to be like boars, but they're also said to be like oaks. And there I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground. I've seen some big oak trees, right? And I know what these two heroes standing up in front of the gate that they're protecting, what they might have been like. So it does seem to me like it's kind of breaking down a difference. And it breaks down a difference just like the story about the destruction of the trench and the wall breaks down a kind of difference from the other side. You might think the god's activity is utterly different from a huge rainstorm or something, but no, right? How did the gods get rid of the Achaean fortifications? Well, there's this huge rainstorm, this big flood. So it it seems to me to have this effect of kind of blurring the differences between war and peace on the one hand and between the divine and the natural on the other hand. I mean, it points to, to a certain degree, I think, in that blurriness, how... It's, it's really that first cause that determines everything else, right? Like, if somebody's trying to kill you, then one would consider it moral to defend oneself, right? Or to counterattack that person in order to make sure that they don't do it again. That, that is something that we could probably argue in a modern legalistic mm-hmm. and moral framework that that's okay. But in warfare there needs to be, you know, the, the causus belli, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the whole reason you're there in the first place. And I think that that is yeah. where you get on some very kind of moral rocky ground, right? Is, is going to war Troy with this giant Greek army, is that in and of itself moral? Then, you know, do the Trojans have a right to defend themselves? And then do the Greeks have a right to defend themselves? And it's this, it creates a fuzzy moralistic framework Mm-hmm. that I don't know if that exists mm-hmm. in the natural world so much that outside of the human experience do we see mm-hmm. things like causes belli mm-hmm. does, does that exist I don't know 
There's a. Oh, sorry, you guys have. Go ahead. Oh, no. Do you guys have any since like we're we're talking about this book and we're taking it on its own terms? So mm. we're you know looking at book twelve is four hundred seventy lines. We're looking at those four hundred seventy lines, but the book follows this dramatic twist in the narrative in book eleven, which is that Patroclus has just been implied is going to put on the armor of Achilles, and so mm. it seems to me if I'm listening to this and I'm going through, I get to that point. And it's sort of like a point in a movie where you're like, whoa, this is not a turn that I expected. And so then I'm I'm hungry coming out of book 11 for how is this going to go? Achilles, I mean, Achilles, is he coming back? Is he not coming back? Is Patroclus going to look like Achilles? This is the height uh, of the of the of the piece in a, in a sense, because it's, it's dealing with in so far as book 11 deals with the question of Achilles, it deals with the most urgent question on the reader's mind up to that point, which is what is Achilles going to do? And so we get an, a kind of a um, hint at what, what might be happening with Achilles, or at least that Patroclus is going to be drawn into the battle, or maybe Achilles is going to be drawn into the battle again, it's unclear. And then we don't get a kind of delivery on that um, you know, literary pressure. Instead, we get this book. We get 470 lines of mm -hmm. this. And so I'm trying to understand why book 12 at this point in the narrative, and why not book 12 here's Patroclus or here's Achilles coming back into battle and it's just what we expected and let's rock like let's go why at this moment halfway through after um, Patroclus is sort of you know drawn in and Achilles is drawn back in this book is put in there what what is it what do, do you guys have any sense for why now and how this makes sense with uh, book 11 uh, as, a, as, a, as a sequel to it I mean I'm getting something along just raising the stakes right we need to ratchet up the tension and raise the stakes a bit more. That once Hector throws the rock through the gates, now we have breached the Achaean walls. So the Trojans at the gates maybe isn't enough for Patroclus to put the armor on, but once the gates are broken, now your defense has begun to crumble. And so now it is a matter of not just winning, but survival. And so maybe even with the amount of gore, the amount of action in book 11, Homer wanted to turn it up even a little bit more and say now like the Trojans are inside the camp. Mm -hmm. And that's what was necessary to get Patroclus to do what the gods ordained that he do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really feel that. In other words, it has the effect of the cliffhanger, right? You got to wait a, a week, or at least in old-fashioned television, you have to wait a week to find out what happens. And there's a kind of postponement um, that sharpens the gratification when it finally happens. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe the aggravation of the Greek situation, it's not just that the Trojans are uh, at the ditch, but they're inside among the ships, adds to that. Um, but it does presuppose then that you've been hearing or reading the books in order, right? If I dial history back to a time when these um, were recited, then they might have been recited just as chunks. I have difficulty, you know, would I ever ask just for book 12 to be recited on its own, right? Does it make sense as a book, um, apart from what happens before it, apart from its place in the unfolding of the Iliad as a whole. Yeah, that question uh, I, I find hard to answer. It does seem like a book that just on its own grounds is somewhat less compelling than the others are. Yeah, it seems like, you know, we should have been reading books one through 11 in 
with the, the um, philosophic uh, theme mm -hmm. of nature and convention in mind. I hadn't done that so much. And so now I'm looking back and I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain and think, okay, where has this come up prior so, so that I can try to translate this book retroactively into what I had seen and thought I had learned. And then uh, it seems to me now Homer has given me a lens through which he's saying, read the rest mm -hmm. of the book through this. And so it seems like there's a sort of two, I mean, it's and it's halfway. And so there's like a, a two part task to, to look at the themes presented in book 12 and try to see where they were in one through 11 when they weren't made explicit that they were there. And then where are they in um, mm -hmm. 13 through 24? Yeah, so maybe we've been put on notice that we need to keep another thing in mind as we read forward. I also just want to say, with respect to your formulation about nature and convention, right, a philosophic distinction, something very interesting happens in the similes. Um, the last three of them are really weird. Um, and what I, what I mean by weird is just that they seem to depart from the ordinary pattern. So we get a lot of uh, fairly straightforward, Hector's like a lion, or he's like a wild boar. Um, the stones fell like snowflakes. The Achaeans are like wasps or bees, right? So a kind of um, fairly easy to understand comparison. And you could maybe locate in each case, oh, this is exactly the point of resemblance, right? There are lots of stones, just like there are lots of snowflakes or something. But then we get this weird series, the last three, around line 421. The Achaeans and the Trojans are like two men arguing over the place of landmarks in a field. 453, the Achaeans and Trojans are like a careful woman weighing wool, right? And then my favorite, uh, Hector with the big stone around 451, he's like a shepherd lifting the fleece that he's just shorn from his sheep up over his head, right? So it looks like a big mass, but it's light. He's so strong, this stone is, is like fleece shorn from a sheep. And maybe the last one makes some sense, but there's, they're more elaborate and they're more challenging as uh, similes than the, the first ones, I think. They're not natural anymore. They're not natural. They're yeah. conventional activities, you know. Yeah, which raises that question that I think we started with, right? Which is, is war something natural? Because if now we're stretching for conventional similes, things that humans do or ways that humans are that aren't shared by the rest of the natural world, then does does that simile, or does using that simile point to the convention that is war rather than it being a natural kind of outgrowth of what goes on in the rest of the living world? I don't know. Yeah, and as you pointed out, Brian, our, our morality, modern morality, really seems to depend on there being a legal distinction between war and peace, right? Certain things are prohibited in wartime, certain things are permitted, and similarly with peace. And you better know which one you're in, right? But if Homer says, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's just a question of degree, that there's war everywhere, uh, war is a kind of exaggeration of a peacetime activity, that might give us pause in terms of thinking that we know the difference as clearly as we want to. And it's something I think for our listeners that is kind of a given, right? For, for a lot of the listeners that have been in the military, you know, because you think about that in a very like, okay, this is peacetime, this is wartime. This is what we do here, this is what we do there. And it's taught that way, it's structured that way. Is it structured that way because 
it's true or is it structured mm -hmm. that way just because it's an easier way to think about it? And I don't mean like lazy easier. I mean just in order to understand what one is called upon to do in war that one has to say, like we used to make the joke, you know, in training exercises, we would say, all right, hominus dominus, you know, we say the magic words, hominus dominus, this is what just happens, right? And we would just allow for that, that, that is part of kind of your training. We would just make up some stuff in order to be able to do what we were trying to do. Is the idea of a separate piece at wartime a sort of hominus dominus? It's like, nope, no, magic words, we're at war. So now the mm -hmm. things that we take as foundational as to what actions are right or wrong now change. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess maybe that's the last word. <laughs> you got uh, the last word. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't do that. I usually don't like doing that. But I guess that's it. So thanks, guys. Combatandclassics.org, at Combat and Classics on all the socials. Thank you, dear listeners. You can also reach out to us via email, combatandclassics at gmail.com. If you've got a question, you can rate us on the iTunes. That helps us a bunch in terms of growing our listener base. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, thanks Shiloh. And we'll be back with book 13.